called the uh, Holmes Rea Stress Scale. It's been around for years and it's still used as a predictor of how people, what, uh, what stress does um, and how it affects whether or not you might get sick, like seriously sick. And so it gives, it, it takes 43 stressful events that could happen in a person's life. And in, a, in the span of 12 months, if you experience these things, it gives you points based on how many of those stressful things have happened. And if you add up to a certain amount, you're at a low risk or medium risk or a high risk of getting ill as a result of stress. And that list includes a whole bunch of things that are very, very stressful occurrences in somebody's life, including uh, the death of a spouse, um, adding a child to a family, having t- serious trouble with a boss, uh, having personal injury. And then uh, on the list of these 40 things, 43 things, it just adds this one, Christmas. Just by being alive at Christmas, you get so many stress points because it's understood that Christmas gives that level of stress. And that means that it's going to hit you. It's going to, it's inevitable that it has to intersect your life, whether you celebrate it or not. At that intersection, a whole lot of things can be true. And you may be intersecting this Christmas, uh, and find you, it may find you very much a weary person or maybe a frenzied person. It may find you in serious transition in your life. Maybe it finds you lonely or disappointed or disheartened or wounded or angry. Or maybe it finds you anticipatory. Maybe it finds you hopeful or happy or eager. Maybe it just finds you numb. Regardless how Christmas is intersecting your life this year, it still is going to have an effect on you. And so we will go out, most of us, chasing some ingredients to help it have the magic come. $620 billion will be spent in this country this Christmas shopping season. A record's going to be set. Some of you already have contributed to it. 98.6 million Americans will travel more than 50 miles this year at the holidays. And for a whole lot, there's just a whole lot of emphases going on and, and pursuits on finding what gets talked a lot about this time, the true meaning, right, of Christmas. Uh, about 1,600 years ago, in the 400s, um, this little instrument was designed and created. It's been celebrated by different people, Protestants, Catholics, all over the world around Christmas time. And the reason Advent, and that word is from the Latin, which means the coming or the arrival. The reason it was, it was developed was to try to be a tool, because even in the 400s AD, that, that same thing was becoming true. That all the frenzy and all the stress and all that was squeezing people to say, okay, wait, how do we, how do we focus? And so, followers of Jesus came up with five things represented by five candles that are fi- the f- five foci, is that the plural? Of focuses. Of, about the arrival, about the coming of the Messiah as a tool to say, let's, let's get, let's clear the decks a little bit. Let's, let's get our hearts back on what this is about. And so, and here's why those five were chosen is because each represents an aspect of the coming of the Messiah, the Son of God to earth, the incarnation that when you think about it, it can have an effect to center you. So we're going to light them, most of them this morning. 
and just talk about what they are from the Word of God. So if you have a Bible, I, take, I want to invite you to the classic passages about the birth of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at Luke chapter 2. You might stick a finger in each of those or tab it in your electronic device. And let me just read a very, very well-known passage about... Uh, this, this is from Matthew chapter 1, verse uh, 18. I'm just going to read the first handful of verses from it. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had a mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. If you flip over to Luke chapter 2, it says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree. Census should be given. Verse 4 says, Joseph went up from his town of Nazareth in Galilee to, Ju- uh, in, to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house of the line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, Time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. So, try to focus on this. And the first candle that we're going to light, the first candle of Advent, is, is, it's called the prophet's candle. And there's a reason why this gets mentioned first. And that's because, here's the deal. When something really, really big is being planned, something that's expected to be really significant, it is scheduled way in advance. It is planned and it is talked about. As an example, many, many of you have seen since the day after Thanksgiving, over 50 million Americans have seen this, which has snippets here. This, which is foretelling about something that's coming out. The day after Thanksgiving, the Star Wars Episode Seven trailer came out, first one. People saw this. People are excited about this. People cannot wait for this to happen. And it's coming out at Christmas time. Christmas of December 2015. So the, tag, the hashtag has been, may the patience be with you. <laughs> The prophets, there's a rule of thumb. The farther in advance something is previewed, the more significant it's expected or considered to be. And so, in the grand scheme of God and His plan, the arrival, the day when He would infiltrate the planet in flesh and blood, that day was previewed more significantly, more times than any other event. In 1400, B.C., it was foretold, a little, a little teaser came out that said something was going to happen. In Genesis 49, it puts it this way, the scepter will not depart from Judah. It's, something's going to come out. There, here's the prophets we're talking about. It's going to come from the tribe of Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. 1,400 years before the movie comes out. 700 years before the movie came out. The prophet Isaiah talked about it and gave some detail and said that it was going to come from the family of Jesse, from the line of David. 
The reason it was given was so that those who, when it happened, people would be able to recognize it. There were indicators that said it would come. The prophets gave gave the, the details to underscore it and say, this is big, this is big, this is big. Be careful when you do that. You know, be careful this week, or maybe you've already done it, saying to somebody, oh, I cannot wait for you to open the present that I got for you. Oh, you're going to, oh, I can't wait for this. Uh, this, I, this is so, be careful when you do that because you are setting them up for major disappointment. I will tell you but that my mother loved double polyester double knit and that's what I got. And she would say, oh, I can't wait. I can't wait for you to open it up. And I'm expecting Hot Wheels. And I open it up and it's slacks. And she would always ask the same question. She'd look back she'd say, do you love it? You are just forcing a lie out of me on Christmas. No, if, you're, if you say something's going to be great, man, it's important that you have got to deliver. And so the details were given by the prophets over and over and over again. And so the details were where, it's where it's going to happen. It's going to happen in Bethlehem. The details about when it's going to happen. Daniel talked about his 69 weeks of years. And you could actually count from his day to the day when that Messiah would enter uh, the, Jerusalem. Count back from that and know exa- pretty much when he was going to be born. How he was going to be born, Isaiah talked about. You've seen this passage before, Isaiah 7. This is 700 years in advance. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Are you still in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22? All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child, will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The prophet's candle. The, the, it's lit and when it is lit it reminds us of something that this event is not like the other events in our lives it's not like the other events in the world you could list all the other things that have been major influences on our culture and our lives and on nations and powers and kings and kingdoms but this one was previewed by prophets who said pay attention to this This is the one thing that will change your life more than anything else. Why? Why? Hang on, we'll get there. Because the second candle of Advent is called the Bethlehem candle. Now, if you're in Matthew, you can take a look at uh, Matthew 2, verses 4 to 6. This is when King Herod is trying to figure out what all the hubbub is about and if there's a threat to his throne, his, 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 his Roman rule. Verse 4 says, when he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. They had an answer. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. They are quoting the prophet Micah, who said it in advance, Micah 5.2, you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, of old, from ancient times. Here's why this is significant. The second candle gets lit. The focus of the Bethlehem site. Because when God Almighty, the ruler of heaven and earth, the one who commands armies of angels, decided where his entry point 
his port of entry would be into the realm he created. The focused event that he has been foretelling for centuries on end. When he chose that place, of all places, he chose this one. Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem this week has been teamed with people who are tourists who go in and try to look to see where the Christ child was born. But do you know what Bethlehem was like back then? It was a nondescript, common, little town of Bethlehem. In that day, sheep outnumbered people in Bethlehem. It was a little outpost about six miles outside Jerusalem. It's, it's like one of those little places, if you go on Route 40 and you just head west, you see a little sign and it says a little town. You go, I never, where is it? It's the name of the sound, town is on both sides of the sign kind of thing. You know? People knew it vaguely because it was the birthplace of the great King David, but that's not where he ruled. It's not where he made history. And God chose this little place to be the entry point of the king of kings instead of the capitol building, instead of the royal palace, instead of a place that would be the cultural center or the commercial center or the political center or the military center of the world where you would expect it would happen. And the main point for that is this. It is not that which evokes value that God uses or visits or gets his attention. It's that which is made valuable by his presence. Bethlehem represented that. Now, just this uh, past month, uh, a, um, an auction took place in New York City, and two things got auctioned off. One was the, you might have heard about this, the outfit worn by the Cowardly Lion in uh, Wizard of Oz in 1939. And the other one was a piano, the upright piano that was played in Casablanca. Play it again, Sam. Just remember this, a kiss is just a kiss on that piano. It's estimated that the actual cost of the costume on the left would probably be around $250 today. And the piano on the right is an upright, and it varies. It wasn't the the greatest quality one. It would be a little more than that. Cowardly Lion outfit sold for $3 million. The piano sold for $3.4 million. I didn't buy it. I'm not touching it. But there's a reason why they were seen as so valuable. It wasn't because of what they were in themselves. It's what happened in them, what happened to them, what they were used for. Isaiah 61 says, this is what... The prophet said that Jesus would do, who he would come and who he would influence, who he was going to target, who he's going to give value to. When he said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news. Look, look who the recipients are of that. Look who he came to bring life into. Good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the, the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He came for poor and brokenhearted and captives and prisoners. And all of that was symbolized by where he first touched down, where he first drew breath into human lungs. Of all the places he could go, 
He chose Bethlehem. See, here's the thing. Jerusalem didn't need him. Jerusalem was the town of Israelite kings. Jerusalem was a place of power. Jerusalem didn't need him. Rome didn't need him. Oh, they needed him. They just didn't think they needed him. They had their stuff going on. They had, they had things that were meeting their needs. They, they had things that they felt like gave them value. They didn't need him. Bethlehem needed him. Can I translate that? Some of us in the room, let's just be honest, we don't need him. Oh, we do, we just don't realize it yet. And so we visit him now and then, celebrate him now and then, but it's not his touch that would give us our sense of direction in life. It's not his presence that would transform us and to give us something of value. When the Son of God came, he came to inhabit that, which which recognized that it didn't have value on its own. And gave it value simply by touching it. Simply by inhabiting it. Simply by being part of it. That's what the Bethlehem candle means. So when we, when we light the, the Bethlehem candle, we are recognizing something. That the Son of God and His presence is for those who need it. Those who recognize that they're lost without it. That they have nothing without that presence. Here's the third candle. It's pink. It's called the shepherd's candle. The reason it's pink is because historically it's associated pink was with joy. I'm not even sure. I tried to research why that is. Just pink makes you happy, I guess. There may be more to it than that. But it's set apart for the shepherds because specifically it focuses on the joy of the shepherds. And you've got, if if you've got uh, your Bibles, you can take a a look at Luke chapter 2. In verse 8 says, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. The angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And then the angel tries to correct that and says, do not be afraid. Here's what I'm giving you. It's good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Great joy for all the people. The focus of this is that there is an impact and an effect an internal effect that the coming of the Messiah has on those who receive it that's, that's brought about by the sheer extravagance of the gift. Now, I've always heard it said that there is no greater joy than being a parent at Christmas because you had got to open presents for yourself when you were a kid but to watch it through the, the, your children's eyes is just so much deeper and it, uh, something of enjoyment. And I'm here to tell you, that's just not true for me. <laughs> no, man, I just, I just really like opening stuff for myself. I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's just the reality. And I still, when you ask me my favorite Christmases, I still remember the time when I woke up and my brother and I were sneaking around to see what's happening. And, and we had to go wake my parents up. We had to go up on the hallway from our bedroom to their bedroom to wake them up. And they told you not to look in the family room, which was, but there was a big door to the family room right off the little hallway. And I couldn't help myself. And I looked over and in front of me was this giant 
flying saucer. I am not making this up. It's Christmas morning and there's a flying saucer in our living room by the tree. It wasn't under the tree. It was like three times the size of the tree. We race in to get our parents. We go in and they bought us a flying saucer. It was this cardboard thing that when you assembled, it was like two rows here. It filled up the whole room. You got in it. There was all kinds of cardboard kinds of stuff on the inside. And there was a little 45 record a while ago called Fun in a Flying Saucer. You played the record and it had sound effects and you flew the flying saucer and it took you on an adventure. We got done with that. When it was all done, there was a little note on the tree that took us on a little excursion through the house. And at the end of the excursion, I went to the basement and there it was, a five-speed bicycle with purple and little things coming off the edge and a banana seat, a little shifter in the middle so that if you fell off it, it really did a lot of damage. And I can have my kids open presents and say, isn't that nice? But no, nothing was greater than that. It was pure joy in my life. Okay, I'm an evil person. There is something, there's an effect that came. And, the, and here's what's interesting about the shepherds. Okay, There was an expression known for, about the shepherds in that day. It was, and it, it still can be true in a lot of places in the world. The expression that was used is, nothing ever happens to a shepherd. Nothing ever happens to a shepherd. Shepherd had a very, very common, steady existence. They were usually drew people who were just kind of like being by themselves. It was them and the sheep. And they would, and, and basically the shepherd's job was to move the sheep and feed the sheep and water the sheep and clean the sheep, shear the sheep and guard the sheep. And if he chased away a wolf once, it was the highlight of his year. It was something that was action. They were always the last to know what was going on in the world. There were times, it's said, that in that part of the the world, there would be takeovers where nations would take over capitals, there would be wars, and the shepherds would not even know it happened. Because they're just... Sheep and just sheep bird. They're just, they're just chasing sheep. Now, here's something that would be, was said in Isaiah about, about the coming of Christ. It says, you've heard this phrase. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Now, would you look again at Luke chapter 2? And look what it says in verse 11. That the audience are the shepherds on the hillside. That subgroup of people. This is who the announcement is made to. And look what it says. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born. See what it says? To you. To you. Now, it wasn't just talking specifically about the shepherds, but the fact is the shepherds, when they read Isaiah chapter 9, they thought it was talking about the country and the leaders and the kings. But they hear that this Prophecy was actually fulfilled and specifically given. And of all people it could be announced and handed to, it was the shepherds. This is, he's been born and he's been born to you. What has been given then filled them with joy. They were terrified at first. 
But it goes on to say that the joy that filled them transformed their lives. They became agents and carriers of this news. They became the first witnesses of the gift. They went and spread it, you'll see if you keep reading, to the region around them that said, said something has changed. They were filled with this joy. And the joy came to those who never experienced joy, whose existence was menial and monotonous and common. So, when we light the shepherd's candle, it is a statement that says that there is not just a physical event happening. There is a source of transforming joy that's available to us. And then we get to the angels. The fourth candle. Now angels, as you might have heard, the word angel is from a, the Greek word which means announcer or messenger. They're servant messengers. They're, they were very active in, in various times in God's program for human life. And then times you didn't hear about them at all. But they got really, really ramped up during the times of the big events. When God wanted to make sure that something was seen and heard and, and known about. And so the principle there is that, that the, the, when the message is so significant that you really want to get it out, you pull out the big speakers so you can blast it as, as loud as you can. And again, we already read it, but if you look at Luke chapter 2, verse 9 says, An angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around him. This is probably the Shekinah glory. It's probably lighting the sky. By the way, the shepherds did not sing. They, weren't, they, they made statements, thundering, powerful statements. They turned, this one goes up to 11. They turned up the, the amps on this. And the angel makes the statement, and then you see in verse 13, and suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel. They were praising God, and they were saying aloud, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the message is so significant, you really, really trumpet it. Do you know that in the whole history of the New York Times, their biggest font type is 96 point times font for their front page headlines they have only used it five times in history here's when they were the first one was in 1969 when men walked on the moon next one was in 1974 when president nixon resigned it wasn't used again until the first of january in the year 2000 when it was expected that whole systems were going to crash and then it was used in 2001 september when it said U.S. attacked. The fifth of the times happened after the presidential election in 2008 when President Obama was elected. There's a possible sixth one <laughs> that we're waiting for. Let a man dream. Angels were never more active never more active than surrounding the announcements of the pregnancy and the birth of the Messiah. The big speakers came out. Because the message was so intense that even angelic beings who had witnessed so, all of history and had seen the glory of God and were serving the Most High God, they were eager. The, the spirit around this is that they were so much asking, can we go yet? Can we go yet? Can we say it? Is it time? Can we say it now? Some of you will get a gift this week. 
that the person can't wait to surprise you with. They can't wait to see the reaction. The angels couldn't wait for this announcement to be made, and there's a reason why. It's because they knew that if there is only one thing a person, a human being, could possibly hear, if they could only be given one message in all of eternity, it was this message. Your Savior is here. The King has come. Your way of salvation has been provided. And so, when the angel candle gets lit, it's a picture for us that says very, very profoundly and strongly that there is only one message that is at the top of the list of what every every member of your family needs to hear. Every culture, every tongue, every civilization, there is one message that is absolutely at the highest that must be heard and must be understood. Your Savior is come. He has come for you. Now, if you go back to Matthew chapter 1, there's one more candle that we're going to leave unlit today because we're going to light it on Wednesday night. And the last candle is, is, the, it is the Christ candle. It, the, when it actually marks the actual arrival, the thing that has been promised is actually delivered. It's presented. He shows up. Matthew 1, verse 23, says, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him a title. His name is Jesus, which means the Lord saved. His title is going to be Emmanuel. And it tells you right there what that means, the translation it means. It means God with us. Now, we need to understand something. At the time this was stated, in the time of the prophets, all the way through the birth of Christ, the understood proximity of God to human beings, the, the relative position of God to individuals and to collections of people was basically that he is there, he is the judge, he's the ruler, but he lives in heaven, he might know what's going on on earth, but he's basically out there. Somewhere, You know what? It's very similar to what you hear a whole lot of people. The, the man upstairs is watching over. Somebody up there likes me. The picture is, yeah, he's there. Was it 95% of the population acknowledges that? But that's pretty much it. In the, when this was written, the idea that God was there was not a problem. But this statement would hit them square in the face with a concept they had trouble understanding. That this God was, he was no longer, this act was going to mean he is no longer just out there. He is going to be here in the room. God is going to be with us. See, once they, they knew, well, God visits mankind, and, but the, here's the picture they had. Yeah, God comes and he, he drops in on us once a year. Once a year. And he shows up in the temple. And he'll be there. But we don't get to see him. We can only stand in the outer courts, but we hear he's in there behind this curtain. 
And the priests all gather around, and then the high priest is chosen, and the high priest has to go through all kinds of ritual, ceremonial cleansing, and that high priest is allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, the place where God would show up. They'd have kind of like a little appointment, and it happened once a year. That was it. That was how God showed up. That's, how he, that's the time he was kind of close to us. And forgive the parallel, but you know, isn't that how we think about Santa Claus? He... he, he he, well, he lives at the North Pole. That's a, that's, we just don't, that's just a long way away. That's out there somewhere. And he's, and he's good and he's doing stuff, but he's basically unseen. Oh, he, he knows when you're sleeping and he knows when you're awake, but you don't see him. In fact, you're not allowed to see him because I was told if you saw him, party's over. Collect all that stuff, gets in his sleigh and goes. You can contact him for about a month after Thanksgiving, by letter. You can tell him what's on your mind, how you've been good, and what you'd like. And then, he'll pop in. He'll pop into your place in a split second. He stops time. He does whatever metaphysics are involved. And he goes and visits you, but you're not allowed to see him. You just see the results of his being here. And so, so he's really this kind of mysterious guy who we don't really get to know and we don't really get to see but we just hope for the best from. And it's possible, isn't it, that the, that, that view of what, how we're pictured Santa, the fact that he's so far away and so mysterious, is why you see pictures like this when people see him. When they're, they're actually exposed to him for the first time, they're kind of freaked out by the guy. They're not sure what to do with him being that close. And it's sometimes it's absolute terror. Although you look at that face of sin, I think I'd result the same way. Here's the shock that these people experience with the coming of Christ. God had said in Ezekiel 37 and other places, I'll put my sanctuary among them forever, my dwelling place. It's, my house is going to be there. I'm going to live among these people. It'll be with them. I will be with their God and they will be my people. And then it says in John chapter 1, verse 14, this is how it happened, that the word the eternal expression of God, the second person of the Godhead, becomes flesh. He wraps himself in material, flesh and blood. He, he clothes himself with that. He becomes an embryo. He come, becomes a fetus. He becomes an actual living human being. For this purpose, to dwell among us. We've seen his glory, it says, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, Santa sees all things and he keeps lists. But Christ entered to be with you, to live with you, to walk through today with you, to go to work and school and live in your home. And more than anything, to be embraced in your soul in a cleansing way through what he does on the cross. He came to be, to dwell among us. So when we light that candle, the Christ candle, externally, what we want to do is we want to focus on the fact that everything else in all of human history 
and all of the things God has talked about and all the, the extravagant plans he put into motion culminate in the presentation, the arrival, the advent of his son. Externally, we want to do that. We hope you'll do it this week. But internally, internally, it's our opportunity to not just recognize it, not just celebrate it too, but to embrace it. Because it says that he was the... He was the light. And that light became the life of men. That happens when I embrace the risen Jesus who came as a baby, as my personal cleanser. He is God with me. And I embrace His coming for all that it's worth. I invite you to talk to the living Jesus with me right now. Would you bow your heads and join me?